I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas. In October of 1961, Marshall McLuhan sat down at his typewriter to send greetings to his friend Carl Polanyi on the occasion of his 75th birthday. Not very long ago, he wrote, you were to me only the remote and fabulous artificer of the Great Transformation. So it seemed quite improbable, McLuhan continued, to learn a year or two later that Carl Polanyi himself was dwelling near Toronto. Others shared McLuhan's surprise at finding the vaunted Hungarian scholar living in a small cottage near Pickering, Ontario, and many became friends and enjoyed, in Carl Polanyi's company, what McLuhan called a continuous flow of insight and discovery. Tonight on Ideas, we recall Carl Polanyi's last years in Canada as we continue with David Cayley's series on Polanyi's life and thought. Carl Polanyi left his native Hungary in 1920. He lived first in Vienna and then in England, making his living as a writer, teacher, and journalist. In 1944, he published the book Marshall McLuhan admired so extravagantly, The Great Transformation, a study of the origins and development of modern market society. The book began a new career for Polanyi in the United States and led him, by and by, to Canada. David Cayley picks up the story in Part 4 of Markets and Society. In 1947, on the strength of his pioneering work in economic history, in his book The Great Transformation, Carl Polanyi was invited to teach at Columbia University in New York, his first university appointment at the age of 61. The university would prove a vital and sympathetic milieu for Polanyi's work, but he was prevented from making New York his year-round home. Kari Polanyi-Levitt is Carl Polanyi's daughter. The hitch, she says, was her mother, Ilona Dutinska, who had once belonged to the communist parties of both Hungary and Austria. My mother applied for a visa, but she was a victim of the McCarran Act. And it's said that anybody who is or ever has been a member of the Communist Party or any number of similar such prescribed organizations could not be admitted to the United States. So my mother was... Uh, not able to join my father. My father and his colleagues attempted to do something about this, and they went on a delegation, I think, to the president of the university, which was Dwight Eisenhower at that time. And he said that he couldn't do anything about that. So my mother decided to set up home in Canada so that my father could come home on vacations. And my father would uh, commute, you know, like a student. He would come for Christmas and Easter and, of course, the summer vacations. Ilona Duchinska found a little cottage in the hamlet of Rosebank, 20 miles from Toronto, near Pickering. It stood at the edge of a steep bank which led down towards the Rouge River, near its entrance into Lake Ontario. Trains whistled as they crossed a trestle bridge nearby. 
The Polanyis called the place Skunk's Hollow, and in time it became a destination for an ever-widening circle of new friends from Toronto. One of them was Ursula Franklin, who had come to Canada from Germany in 1949 to pursue a career as a research scientist. She met Carl Polanyi through her friend C.B. McPherson, Brough McPherson, as she knew him. I must have mentioned to Brough how much I gained from reading The Great Transformation. And it was Brough who said, you know that he's here. And I had no idea that Carl Polanyi would be in Canada and around Toronto. So Brough invited the two of us for lunch to the faculty club. And somehow Carl and I hit it off because he was so much like the generation of my parents and my teachers, that European urbanity, where it really didn't matter whether they were German or Hungarian, where I knew instinctively all the tribal rights. I knew the references that one would make. I almost anticipated the good to quote at a certain point. So it was something extremely comforting, like getting into a garment that you knew. And I think for him it was sort of the surprise that somebody isn't surprised at him. So he invited me out, and I went to Pickering into that little cottage. And that same being comfortable replicated itself and even amplified with Ilona. Ilona was like my mother, an academic as well as an extraordinarily political person interested in people. Ilona Duczynska was a revolutionary socialist with an academic background in engineering. She'd been jailed in Hungary during what she called the revolutionary years of 1917 and 1918, and during the 1930s she'd fought the right-wing takeover in Austria. She and Ursula Franklin became dear friends, and Franklin came to greatly admire the way Duczynska and Polanyi lived. That little cottage in Pickering was simple, if not shabby. There was that sense of priority that I grew up with. Material things mattered only as long as they made one useful. Beyond that, it didn't matter to hoots what you would be wearing, whether your windows were clean, what was on the table. But while they were more than frugal about material things, by the same token, they were incredibly generous in terms of the use of their money, and there was surely not much for a long-distance call. There's no question that one would phone to Italy in the middle of the night because some poor Hungarian or Eastern European intellectual whom they didn't know couldn't get a manuscript 
that they didn't know out of Hungary. And it's the 60s, and overseas courts were expensive. But every piece of bread, I'm sure, in that house was day-old bread. And every piece of clothing came somewhere from a second-hand store or sale. But you buy every book that matters. You subscribe to every obscure little magazine that is novel. Ursula Franklin was not the Polanyi's only admirer amongst Toronto's more adventuresome thinkers. Another regular visitor to Skunk's Hollow was Marshall McLuhan and his family. Marshall McLuhan would come with his whole tribe of children. And then the children would go down. There was an old boat. At the bottom, you go down a rather steep set of bushes. and the bottom, there was the River Rouge, slow-flowing, rather muddy, but perfectly respectable river, and enough of a river to float a boat. And the children would go down. And he came. He used to like to talk to my father. So they were good friends. Carl Polanyi had many friends. He was a convivial man, mild, tolerant, and passionately talkative. And there was only one kind of person that really irritated him, his daughter says. He was dismissive only of educated fools. When I say educated, I mean people pretending to education, degrees in university, credentials, and so on. And his worst form of abuse of anybody was, was a monumental ass. That was the, absolutely the worst. But the monumental ass was only something that might be said about somebody pretending to be learned and pompous and foolish. The first amongst Karl Polanyi's many conversational partners was always his wife, Elena Duchinska. It was in her, Ursula Franklin came to think, that he found the intellectual counterpoise that he needed. One cannot understand Karl if one doesn't take Elena seriously, not just being there and being his wife, but that there was an intense interaction between the two throughout their lives. And that was a generation that talked. The medium was conversation. People talked, talked endlessly to each other about things that mattered, not about the weather, not about money, not about the neighbors but about politics, about ideas, about action. So underlying Ilona's life is that baseline of conversations with Carl, just as underlying Carl's life is that point-counterpoint of talking with Ilona. My parents had an extraordinary relationship. They were very close. They were very separate. My father adored my mother. And within limits, Ilona could do whatever she wished. He 
granted her total freedom as far as he was concerned to do whatever she might wish to do. I never, ever heard an argument or voices raised between my parents, ever, which is quite extraordinary. And my mother was enormously respectful of my father. And he was a person who had to talk his ideas. He had to talk his ideas to somebody. And at the receiving end was usually Ilona, my mother. I mean, they would talk in the bathtub, they would talk on all other occasions. And really he needed a listener. He was a teacher and whatever ideas were forming, he wanted to share, to impart. And my mother listened very faithfully. She also typed his manuscripts all the time in the days when it was a typewriter and, you know, correction. Uh, she kept all the correspondence. The entire archive we have is very largely due to my mother, who kept every scrap of paper and neatly and enormously helpful. The archive Kari Polanyi-Levitt speaks of is housed at the Polanyi Institute in Montreal. She began it, along with Margie Mandel, in 1988. It's since become an important resource for the growing group of scholars from around the world who are interested in Polanyi and his legacy. For many of the years he lived at Rosebank, Karl Polanyi was commuting to New York. He taught a course in general economic history at Columbia University from 1947 until 1953, and he led a seminar in economic anthropology until the later 1950s. Polanyi was entirely self-taught in economics. His university studies in Hungary before the First World War had been in law and his views, by the accepted standards of the field, were heretical. But he had influential admirers amongst Columbia's faculty. A. Brodstein took Polanyi's course at Columbia in the early 1950s. Today, a professor of economics at the University of Toronto, he was then a graduate student on the verge of giving up on economics after an unhappy encounter with the free market doctrines of Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago. With Milton Friedman, it works one of two ways. Uh, some people become his lifelong disciples after they take his course, and others are thoroughly inoculated for life against anything of the same sort. I was in the latter category, and uh, in that sense, I wrestled with the whole definition of economics which was being put forward it was uh, to do with the scarce resources allocated among alternative uses. And I had the feeling that this was so distant and abstract from the real economic problems of the world that I simply couldn't take it. And I thought that if I didn't crack this kind of sense of being penned in by an abstract definition, if I couldn't somehow break out of it, that I would abandon economics altogether. Instead, a. Brodstein transferred to Columbia. And there, without knowing anything of the professor, he enrolled in Karl Polanyi's course in general economic history. 
the very first day I walked in, he was talking about precisely the thing that had bothered me for the last couple of years, namely, what is the significance of this definition of economics as scarce goods and alternative uses? And he pointed out that it was really simply a uh, logical structure that had, didn't have much basic significance, nothing inherently related to the economy itself. And I knew and felt deeply that the economy had to do with problems of stabilizing an economy which had suffered the Great Depression, with equalizing people's fate in terms of the gap between rich and poor, of expanding and examining the consequences of the welfare state. All of these things were the live flesh and blood issues of the economy. And they were somehow screened out in this abstract world. It was with Polanyi that I discovered the kind of analytic approach where he explained what is the strength and weakness of this kind of microeconomics and how you can break out of it and approach the way the world really was. Karl Polanyi had a name for the straitjacket that had been confining A. Brodstein. He called it the economistic fallacy. It involved, he wrote, confusing two very different senses of the word economic. The term economic, as commonly used, is a compound of two meanings. The first meaning refers to what is popularly called economizing, or making the best of one's means. It forms the subject matter of the formal science of economics. The second, or substantive meaning, points to the elemental fact that human beings have material wants and must draw their sustenance from an institutionalized interaction with their natural surroundings. The two meanings have nothing in common. The economistic fallacy consists in confusing them. The economistic fallacy involves mistaking the map for the territory, or in this case, assuming that the formal concepts of economics correspond with the ways in which people actually provide for themselves. The science of economics is founded on a handful of assumptions. Simply stated, these are, first, that people want more than they can have, so there's never enough to go around, the assumption of scarcity. Second, that people must, therefore, compete with each other for these scarce goods. And third, that they must continually economize or make choices between the things they want. Economics, in short, assumes that competition and chronic dissatisfaction are the human lot. Polanyi does not dispute that these assumptions may sometimes correspond with people's behavior in a market economy. But that's because a market economy is constructed along these lines, he says, and not because it's human nature. Intrinsically, hunger and gain are no more economic than love or hate, pride or prejudice. No human motive is per se economic. The economic factor, which underlies all social life, no more gives rise to definite incentives than the equally universal law of gravitation. Assuredly, if we do not eat, we must perish. But the pangs of hunger are not automatically translated into an incentive to produce. Production is not an individual, but a collective affair. 
with man, the political animal, everything is given not by nature, but by social circumstance. What made the 19th century think of hunger and gain as economic was simply the organization of production under a market economy. The assumptions of economics reflect the practices of a market economy, Polanyi says. He wanted to create a universal economics, a substantive economics, as he called it, that would respect all the varieties of economic life. This new science would not assume, as modern economics had, that a natural process of evolution led inevitably to the modern market economy. It would try to analyze other economies on their own terms, rather than reconstructing them in categories fitting only a market economy. In academic terms, this research program pushed Polanyi onto the new terrain of anthropology. But for him, says Kari Polanyi-Levitt, it was just a continuation of the quest that had begun with his anatomy of modern market society, the Great Transformation. I see a very direct connection with the principal thesis of the Great Transformation, which was that never in human history before had the economy been organized on the principle of individual gain. And I think that all of the anthropological research really was to prove this and to do a certain kind of revision on received uh, theory, which, in his view, had interpreted the past through concepts that had come from the present, particularly market principles. What Kari Polanyi-Levitt refers to here as her father's anthropological research involved an interdisciplinary seminar that was set up at Columbia during the 1950s. Its findings were presented in a book called Trade and Markets in the Early Empires, published in 1957. Polanyi can be fairly called the book's inspiration, as well as its co-editor, but he was only one of ten contributors drawn from sociology, anthropology, and economic history. The subject matter ranges from how the Aztecs conducted their trade to how the grain harvest was shared in an 18th century Indian village. I won't try to summarize it here, except to say that Polanyi and his colleagues demonstrate convincingly that the elements of economic life can be put together in many different ways. That trade, for example, can be conducted without a system of prices that fluctuate according to supply and demand, or that various kinds of limited-purpose monies can exist without there ever being a single all-purpose currency into which everything can be converted. These findings, for Polanyi, were of more than antiquarian interest. A. Brodstein, who began as Polanyi's student at Columbia, went on to become his collaborator on a book called Daomi and the Slave Trade, an analysis of the pre-colonial economy of the West African kingdom of Daomi. He says that Polanyi's anthropological inquiries were intended to expand the horizons of economics. He believed that theories are a dime a dozen. He could have a theory, somebody else could have a theory. What really made the difference was the actual experience of economic life and the historical verification of what's there. Because 
where human beings at any point could operate in a certain fashion, then we know that it's possible within the scope of a human organization to repeat something akin to that. It widens our options, in other words, rather than feeling that we are bound, as people would often have said, under the, quotes natural laws of supply and demand, we have a particular system. It's not the only system, and the options we have are far wider than we normally realize. Karl Polanyi and his colleagues' studies of non-market societies were an attempt to reform and to expand the science of economics. But they exerted their most immediate influence on the field of anthropology. Before Polanyi's time, the idea of an innate and universal tendency to economize in the face of scarcity exerted its sway throughout the social sciences. After his time, anthropologists were increasingly willing to insist that other societies must be approached on their own terms, and not just as primitive way stations on the road to one big market. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. Our program tonight is about economic historian Karl Polanyi. It's presented by David Cayley. Karl Polanyi found his great subject, the nature of market society, relatively late in life. He was already 58 years old when his first book, The Great Transformation, was published in 1944. Once he hit his stride, there was a lot he wanted to do. His first four years at Columbia were passed, he wrote to a friend, in the fever of one single uninterrupted workday and his anthropological research was only part of his agenda. He also wanted to write a sequel to The Great Transformation, to be entitled Freedom and Technology. His friend and former student Abe Rothstein was going to be his collaborator. Toward the end of his life, I had very extended conversations with him. I came for weekends uh, from Montreal to where he lived, in the small hamlet of Rosebank near Pickering, and we would spend virtually all of Saturday and Sunday, often 12 hours a day, conversing about these matters. There were many matters that came up, and by conversing, I mean Polanyi conversed and I took notes. These weekend conversations went on for several years. Beginning in 1956, when Abe Rothstein was living in Montreal, and continuing after he moved to the University of Toronto, where he would complete his graduate studies and eventually become a professor. Rothstein's verbatim notes eventually amounted to about a thousand pages of double-spaced typescript. But other projects intervened, and the book never got written. For 40 years, freedom and technology languished. Then, quite recently, Abe Rothstein recruited one of his graduate students, Patrick Lennox, to help him put the material in order. You get the sense that these are sort of almost deathbed notes. You know, he's there, he's got his young student with him, he spent his whole life studying and thinking, and he wants to leave a legacy, and he wants to live on through his student. 
And Rothstein's there, obviously committed to Polanyi, writing furiously as he talks and teaches. Carl Polanyi was in his 70s and ill with cancer during most of the period of Abe Rothstein's visits. He was saying farewell. But his soliloquies did keep circling back to the theme of freedom and technology. And along with other essays he wrote in the 1950s, give a pretty good idea of what he wanted to say. His central concern was the way in which technology was impinging on people's inner freedom. For many today, inner life is dormant. Our existence and our preoccupations seem entirely outside ourselves. Not only does our physical existence seem soldered to technological media, but our emotional experience, our life in society, our most telling beliefs seem to have their locus in the external environment, which has the technological at its core. Along with this loss of inner freedom, Polanyi felt that technological civilization was making people increasingly dependent on complex systems. And this dependence, he thought, tended to produce fear and acquiescence. The conditions of an industrial civilization give rise to unprecedented pressures towards conformity. Helpless millions depend hourly for water, light, and peace on a switch in an unknown hand. A nameless and shapeless fear makes them insist on the need for limitless power in society. A voodoo of latent panic causes them to enforce a deadening uniformity of views and opinions as the road to salvation. Humanity, Polanyi said, was being turned inside out, and this was producing panic and loss of inner orientation. This was also one of Marshall McLuhan's themes at the time, and one can imagine the two friends discussing it. Indeed, Polanyi comes quite close to McLuhan's view that through technology, humanity is generating a kind of external nervous system. What appears as the real world, all that is massive, impressive, and disgust, is outside of us, heaped up in agglomerations of concrete, dynamos, terminal stations, hospitals, structured steel, motor cars, bulldozers, and stocks of goods of endless variety. Man now exists outside himself. He is externalized. His life is hedged in by roadblocks. Yet all this is but a symbol of the true change from inner freedom to loss of freedom. Automation and the mechanical brain are but visible imitations of the automatism and the mechanization of the human tissue of society. The external environment has ceased to be material and mechanical alone. It comprises a human structure, a complex society, which is an ultimate reality. In The Great Transformation, Karl Polanyi had already made the argument he reiterates here that through the knitting up of the world into one great market, society had become, as he says, an ultimate reality. And he had recognized the central role of technology in bringing about this transformation, 
but he had not really explored technology's direct effects on humanity. In his last years with Abe Rothstein, he did. The Great Transformation, in the end, pinpointed the source of our dilemma as a particular kind of institutional network, namely the liberal society and the self-regulating market. But these were man-made institutions. These were created by people, and consequently, no matter what their pernicious consequences, they could be, and in the end, were amended. But the new factor on the scene, the new boy on the block, is not institutional, it's technological. And the technological network is a different animal altogether. It operates in a kind of constraining way, in a kind of fearful umbrella, and it makes the survival of all of life subject to the integrity of this network. In response to this situation, we would create unlimited amounts of power for the state and would sacrifice civil liberties instantly, as we seem to be doing if society at large were at stake. Karl Polanyi shared his thoughts on technology with Abe Rothstein half a century ago. Certain of his phrases, like limitless power or a voodoo of latent panic, seemed to fit our circumstances even better than his. But he had already seen the mushroom cloud above Hiroshima, the mechanical brain, as he calls the early computer, and the tendency of technology to slip out of human control and become an alien power. And even if technology did present a more insidious challenge than the free market, the answer for Polanyi was the same. People must learn to recognize their intricate and inextricable entanglement in society. This is Imre Naic, Prime Minister of the Hungarian People's Republic speaking. This morning, Soviet troops attacked our capital with the intention of overthrowing the legally elected democratic government. Our troops are fighting. The government is still in power. I am bringing this to the attention of the people of Hungary and the whole free world. In October of 1956, Hungary erupted in popular revolution. Within a month, the Soviet Union had invaded and installed a regime more to its liking. Imre Naj, whom you just heard, was later put to death. The uprising, despite its failure, had the greatest importance for both Karl Polanyi and Ilona Duczynska. Both had left Hungary behind and gone into exile after the First World War, when political and social reform had failed and a reactionary and chauvinist government had taken power in Budapest. Now their thoughts returned to their homeland and to the hopes of their youth. They repatriated in spirit, Duczynska said. In Hungary, Polanyi had been a celebrated orator and a student leader in the years before World War I. Duczynska, 
the firebrand, had been jailed for her political activities during the war. Both had been deeply moved at that time by the poetry of André Adi, which to them expressed the very essence of their striving. And both had continued to believe that writers, and particularly poets, are uniquely able to incarnate and give voice to a people. So they decided to pay tribute to the failed 1956 revolution by compiling an English-language anthology of the poetry and fiction that they thought reflected the deep currents of political feeling that had produced the revolt. Ilona Duchinska took the lead and began recruiting Canadian poets with whom she could work on the translations. Margaret Avison was one of her collaborators. I had a room in a friend's apartment in the middle of what's now Yorkville with a big chestnut tree outside the window, very quiet in those days. But uh, Eleanor would come there when she was free to get there and bustle in with all her papers and would mercilessly ignore hours, would sweep past lunchtime, past supper time. Finally, in desperation, I went and made tea and brought it in. And she permitted that, but she didn't touch her tea. <laughs> she was mono-something. I don't know what the word When She got going, you were going, and she was very exacting. Along with Margaret Avison, Ilona Duchinska also worked on translations from Hungarian with poets Earl Burney, John Robert Colombo, A.J.M. Smith, Raymond Souster, and Louis Dudek. Another of her collaborators was Kenneth McRobbie. Now at work on a biography of Duchinska, he would become a close family friend of the Polanyis and develop a lifelong connection with Hungary and Hungarian literature. He remembers visits to Skunk's Hollow to work with Duczynska in the late 1950s. You have to realize that here was this literary activity in this tiny winterized summer cottage in which the frosts and the ice and the snow and then the rains and the sun were beating down upon these fairly frail people. Karl Polanyi going back and forth to the hospital in Toronto for cancer treatments and so forth. Ilona never quite recovering from her motorcycle accident in England. They were not in the best of health, but intellectually they were, they were in the pink. The writers that Kenneth McRobbie and his fellow poets were translating belonged to a literary movement that wanted to speak for the Hungarian people, evoking the misery of the country's large, landless peasantry and the oppression of its urban working class. This movement had flowered Kenneth McRobbie says, in the years just prior to the 1956 revolution. In '53, after the death of Stalin, writers in Hungary, as in Poland, began to speak to the population, to their people at large, concerning the nature of life and the hopes of life and the sufferings that they have gone through. Therefore, this seemed to fulfill the, for the Polanyis all that they had understood to be the role of the poet as they had experienced it prior to World War I. And they further were encouraged by the fact that some of the poets who were writing and publishing in Hungary between 53 and 56 still referred to themselves as communists. Therefore, 
they viewed 1956, and of course this was really out of step with much writing, particularly by Western audiences on 1956. They viewed 1956 not as a revolution of a people who wanted to throw off the socialist tradition and the socialist ideals. Rather, they viewed 1956 as an internal socialist crisis in which the forces of socialist reform were struggling against the forces of tyranny and bureaucracy that had taken over the socialist movement, particularly in the USSR. And this they expressed very forcibly in their preface and foreword to the anthology that finally appeared in 1963 called The Plough and the Pen. The Polanyi's view of the 1956 revolution was out of step, as Kenneth McRobbie says, with the opinion of most of the Hungarians who emigrated to the West after the revolt failed. But Mihaly Shimai says that for many Hungarians, the revolution was an attempt to reform and democratize socialism. Professor Shimai teaches economics and international relations at the University of Budapest and is a board member of the Polanyi Institute. I have been working in 1956 and before in a university, and my colleague was Imre Nagy, the famous uh, figure of the 1956 revolution. And I know very well that the whole thing started as an effort to improve socialism and to establish a kind of a system which is, you know, later on in, in, in the Prague Spring, they called it socialism with human face. But certainly this concept was not invented, but the content of the whole thing was to establish a socialist regime with human face. This struggle for a humane and democratic socialism was little noticed in the West, where heroic anti-communism dominated the frame. And this certainly worked against the plow and the pens finding much of a readership. The book, I should say, is no political tract. It's a collection of highly imaginative writings, some of great tenderness, others with a sharp satirical bite. But it was definitely writing from inside socialism. In England, Hostility in the Hungarian emigre community made it hard, at first, to find a publisher at all. In Canada, McClellan and Stewart's edition had a small sale and was quickly remaindered. The Polanyis and their friends wondered whether anti-communist Hungarians had intrigued against the book in Canada as well. when the plow and the pen was in preparation were years of declining health for Karl Polanyi. In 1957, cancer was diagnosed, but he kept working. One of his last projects was a new journal called Coexistence, an international undertaking dedicated to peaceful interchange between differing social systems and differing social philosophies. He also returned to Hungary after an absence of more than 40 years, 
first in 1961 and again in 1963 at the invitation of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. Mihaly Shimai was one of his hosts. You know, Polanyi's visit was a very interesting event. This was uh, the time of the change after the Hungarian Revolution when the Hungarian uh, regime decided to give amnesty to many of those who have been jailed during the or after the revolution and there was a general relaxation of the atmosphere. <coughs> so the ideas of Polanyi, which earlier didn't really enjoy I would say, a great reception by the official ideologist of the regime, the ideas uh, became, uh, if not completely acceptable, but basically tolerable. And there was a great interest also in Hungary in the ideas of Polanyi among the young academics, because it was already evident in those years that the world is changing. For Polanyi, it was a sentimental occasion. There was a debate with old political opponents from 1919, but mostly it was a chance to meet family and friends and revisit the familiar scenes of his youth, a homecoming. Still he hoped, as he had written a few years before, that his work might one day come to matter in his own country. What I became, I became in my homeland. Hungarian lives have given meaning to my life. When I erred, others paid for it here. The good I have strived for should be realized here. What little I have given to the world should come home. Karl Polanyi died on April the 23rd, 1964. He was buried in Pickering, Ontario. The page proofs of coexistence, the new journal he had instigated, arrived on the day of his funeral. Many years later, in a final homecoming, he was reinterred in Budapest alongside his beloved Ilona Duczynska. Over his first grave, a short poem by Attila Yosef was read. My God, I love you with all my heart. Were you a newsboy selling papers, I'd help you cry them in the street. An epilogue in two scenes. Ilona Duczynska lived another 14 years after her husband's death. She kept the cottage at Rosebank, but spent a lot of her time in Vienna and Budapest. She wrote a book called Workers in Arms, analyzing the defeat of the Austrian Social Democratic Party in 1934, events in which she had been a participant, though there is hardly a personal word in the book. 
She also translated the novels of Joseph Lengiel, sometimes called the Hungarian Solzhenitsyn. And she became a godmother, Kenneth McRobbie says, to the emerging democratic opposition in Hungary. The royalties from her publications for translating the novels of Lengiel, which were payable in Hungarian currency, she gave to the young students and post-students to set up their own printing presses. And we, living here, suddenly became aware of the word samizdat, unofficial underground publishing. And that's what she contributed to starting in Hungary. She even brought in paper, and as well as giving funds to the young people. And in fact, there developed underground magazines and underground mimeograph publications. One of these big mimeograph publications, which was laboriously typed out and then was produced on the old Gestetner ink roller, stapled together and sold, was the of the speeches of Istvan Bibo himself, the man who had um, been at the center of the 1956 revolution. One of the people who took part in this revival of dissent and revolt against censorship was Ivan Selenyi, today a professor of sociology at Yale. He remembers the role Ilona Duchinska played in the trial that was the emerging movement's defining moment. In the dock was Miklos Harasti, a friend of Selenyi's, who had been arrested for writing a critical book called Workers in a Worker's State. It was a big social event, to put it this way, an interesting first uh, appearance of what later became the democratic opposition in, in Hungary. And in the audience, uh, there were three grand old ladies sitting there. One was uh, Ilona Duczynska, and next to her uh, was the widow of uh, Károly, who was a president of the first Hungarian Republic in 1918. And the third one uh, was the widow of Reich, a sort of nationalist communist uh, who was executed in the early 50s by the Stalinist regime. So they were the three great uh, ladies, the three first ladies, to put it this way. And they were sitting in the first row next to each other, Duczynska, Mrs. Karoy, and Mrs. Reich. Uh, kind of demonstrating their sympathy for the then-emergent uh, democratic opposition. Miklos Harasti was acquitted, and the appearance of the three queens, as they were called, was widely credited with having influenced the outcome. Soon afterward, Ivan Selenyi was forced to leave Hungary over a book he had written with his friend George Conrad called Intellectuals on the Road to Class Power. Ilona Duczynska died in 1978. The movement for a democratic socialism ended in 1989 with the absolute collapse of communism and the beginning of a new world. Ilona Duczynska and Karl Polanyi lived lives of remarkable commitment. The Hungarian poet Ferenc Juhasz met them in Budapest in the early 1960s. Years later, he remembered them almost as beings from a vanished world. 
as if a blue twin star of my youth, he says. Can we shine and love the way they could, he asks. Do we have within us that much humility, discipline, attentiveness, faithfulness? Do we have within us that much service, honor, rescuing, desire to redeem the other? For them, Juhas goes on, people still meant a common language, a common morality. They loved with action. On Ideas, you've listened to part four of Markets and Society, The Life and Thought of Karl Polanyi. It was written and presented by David Cayley. The words of Karl Polanyi were read by Kerr Wells. Our series continues next week at this time. Our thanks to Anna Gomez, Margie Mandel, and Kari Polanyi-Levitt of the Polanyi Institute at Concordia University in Montreal for their help with the preparation of these programs. Technical Direction, Tim Lorimer. Editorial Consultants, Richard Handler and Allison Moss. Associate Producer, Liz Nage. Archival Research, Ken Pewley and Norbert Boyley. You can order a printed transcript of this five-hour series for $25, or five audio cassettes or CDs for $40, taxes and shipping included. To order, please call 416-205-7367. You can also send a check or credit card information to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Our order phone once again is 416-205-7367. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The news follows, then the arts tonight, and between the covers. (laughs) ¶¶